Here's what you need to know as we continue our story today. Before God's people went into the Promised Land, Moses brought them together one more time to remind them of the law and to charge them to remain faithful to Yahweh. It would be one of Moses' final acts as leader of the Israelites. In the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses ascended to the top of Mount Nebo where Yahweh showed him the land that his people would inherit. There Moses died, and the mantle of leadership passed to his assistant, Joshua. He would be the one to lead God's people into the Promised Land. Sort of. Shortly after crossing the Jordan River, and just before Israel's first major battle at Jericho, Joshua had an encounter that reminded them who the real leader of Israel was. Because it's easy for us to be deceived, seduced into believing that you and I are more in control of the events and the circumstances that surround us than we really are. Uh, That's why we keep coming back to God. We keep coming back to his revelation to us because without it, it makes total sense for you and I to believe that it is our abilities, it is our understanding of events, it is our effort that really makes the difference. And then the Bible comes to us and it challenges us to see the world in a bit of a different way. I am looking forward to, and um, as a team, we would definitely covet your prayers. Um, Tomorrow morning, five of us are leaving to go to a part of the world. Um, uh, it uh, It is in Africa. It is in Western Africa. It is the nation of Ghana. And five of us are going over there uh, to see a part of the world that I believe none of us have seen. I mean, few of us have actually been to Africa before, but have not been to this particular part of the world. We are going to be working with 27 new church leaders and church plants in northern Ghana, which is about 96% Muslim. And there are Christians who believe that God is the creator of the universe and that Jesus is God's plan of redemption and peace with him. And so we're going to have an opportunity to meet these leaders and to see this ministry. And it's just hard when you and I from here watch the news and watch events. It's difficult for us to get a feel for what really is going on. Isn't it? I mean, you watch the news and you, you see those aspects of the news that kind of bubble to the top. Um, and then they skim them off and then they show us. And you're like, well, that's what matters. The, the, the news events, that's what ultimately matters. That's the direction where the world is going in. And, and, and by the way, the Bible says that that's not the best perspective to have. The Bible comes along and seems to argue quite strongly that the events that seem to bubble to the top and kind of get skimmed off and filtered down, those major events, you know, all the ones that you learned in history, sure, they, they, they value and, and they matter. I'm not trying to say they're, they're meaningless, But what we look at in stories of the law and the land, what we look at through a gospel type perspective is that there is a real leader that is involved. There is a real leader that is making a difference and it is God himself. And he has an invitation for you and I to actively engage in what God is doing and it may never make a newsreel. It may never make a history book, but it makes a difference. It might not even be a difference that you and I can see. And and by the way, God isn't sending the five of us 
Paul and myself and Ryan Bennett and Ryan Smith and Jeremy Redman because we are the ones that are going to go and make a difference. No, we are, um, we're ambassadors of Sunnybrook Christian Church and uh, we're ambassadors of this fellowship, but more than that, we're witnesses and ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And all we're going to do is to try to strengthen our brothers in the Lord, our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are doing a great work and it makes it, and I, I need to know who, who's the real leader? Paul Weiss. No, no, no. Like even more important than Paul. Who's the real leader? And, and the amazing part is it's God. And he comes down and he says, I, I want you to see what I'm doing and I want you to follow me and I'm going to make a difference because I know better than anyone else, like I know what is going on. What I love doing actually is I love sharing with people, particularly followers of Jesus Christ and those that are willing to listen to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I love to point out the painfully obvious. Let me give you one. God knows people. Like really well. I know that it's easy for us in a, in a size of a, of a group like this, or maybe even larger, to somehow feel like we can hide or slip into the crowd. And how well does God really know me? How well does anybody really know me? I mean, there is no such thing in the mind of God and in the heart of God and in the plan of God is anonymity. Like God knows people. And he knows them perfectly. I want you to remember that as you think about how God even deals with people. How God deals with things. Why is this going on in my life? And why is this happening? And what is God doing? Remember, God knows us. God knows my heart. God knows my heart better than I know myself. I can confuse you. I can deceive you about who I am. But I cannot deceive him and neither can you. But which means this, that God knows exactly what we're capable of. God knows what people are capable of. And let's take it in a good way. God knows how, how intelligent and God knows how gifted and God knows how determined you are. God knows that. And so when God asks you, when he invites you to be a part of what he is doing, he knows what you are in fact capable of. And God also knows, by the way, and you might not be comfortable talking about it, but like God knows that you have limits. And he knows that when you're in that job interview and they say, well, let me know, like, what are some of the weaknesses you have? <laughs> that when you say to them, you know, one of my problems is I'm like overcommitted. You know, I'm a bit of a workaholic. I care a little bit too much for those around me. Oh, you are a terrible person. Hardworking and overcaring and overly committed. Hmm, I wonder if I want to hire you, right? But God knows there is a breaking point to you. God knows your leadership limit, not just ability. God knows your, um, your intellectual boundaries. I know you think and your mom thinks that they're limitless. No, there's no pill that can fix that, right? We're not limitless, and God knows. Like God knows, and so when he asks, he knows not only what we're capable of, but he also knows what we're incapable of. And he's good, and he engages us. He engages us, I think, individually and corporately, knowing us perfectly. And that's important when we think about 
all that God has in store for us and all that God desires from us. I don't know if you've looked through the early stories of the Bible this way, but here's what I find interesting. Is that when God engages people, Abram, God knows what he's capable of and incapable of. And God says to Abram, I want you to get up and I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me and I'm going to lead you. And I just want you to follow where I lead you. What God does not say is, Abraham, listen, your wife is barren. And so what I would like for you to do using whatever technology or whatever kind of um, uh, superstition you might have, I need you to figure out a way to have a child that I might bless all through you. And that's your job. And I need you to figure out a way to, to become this great nation so that I can bless you. No, he says, your job, follow me. Your job, be obedient to me. Your job, go where I tell you. I will make the barren pregnant. I will make one many. That is way outside your ability, Abram. But I want you to follow me and then guess what I will do for you. It's like he says to Noah. Noah, what I want you to do is build a boat. That's what I want you to do. Build a boat. You can do that. You can build the boat. And by the way, I'll give you the strength and the the breath and the resources to even build the boat. But I want you to build the boat. What God did not say to Noah is, Noah, I need you to figure out a way to control the cosmic and the heavenly realms and to flood the world. Noah, get to work. No. Build a boat. I'll take care of the rain. God said to Moses, hey, what I need you to do is I need you to walk back to Egypt. I want you to stand before Pharaoh and tell him what I am going to do. Tell him about my people. Tell him about my plan. Tell him to let him go. God did not say, now Moses, what I need you to do is I need you to get all your generals together and figure out a way to throw off the shackles of Egypt. You know what's interesting? Is that you and I, when we think about what God is asking us to do, spend way more time trying to do God's job and not ours. Isn't that true? You and I try to figure out, how do we make it rain? How do we make ourselves more? How do do we we create liberation and freedom? And and God looks at us and he is so kind. you're, You're being foolish. I asked Abraham to obey me and I asked Moses to obey me and I asked Noah to obey me. I'm the one doing this. Do you realize how much pain and grief and frustration you and I have because we get our jobs mixed up? We try to do God's job or or better yet, we try to do not even our responsibility of obeying and then just complain about God and how he's doing his job. And so what we run into today is this amazing story where the children of Israel through the temporary earthly leader Joshua, who is not the leader, but he is the temporary one that God is going to use to bring about his purpose, that God is going to give instructions to, and his responsibility is to do what God says. And God is going to make walls fall down. And God is going to make people who are wearing incredible amounts of armor and who have been trained in the art and the skill of war, he will make them tremble. At a group of ex-slaves who are trying to travel from their old home to their new one. 
And God is saying, I want you to follow and I want you to listen because when Joshua and the Israelites are going up towards the, the, the nation that they're taking over, the kind of the, the land full of a number of different city states that they're about to take over, it is easy for them to look at the walls and think, how do we get over this? How do we, how do we surmise this? How do we overcome this? And they do this. I have no conceivable way. We have no engineering abilities. We have no capabilities to get those walls to come down. Nobody ever thought, you know, what if we just walk around them once every day? And then on the seventh day, walk them around them seven times, and then maybe they'll just fall over. We don't think like that. You want to know why? Because that's crazy. It is. It is absolutely crazy to somehow believe that walking around and then walking around a whole bunch at the last day and then yelling at the walls, ah, <laughs> that they're going to fall down. And by the way, God knows this. He, he just, he, you know what God knows? God knows he doesn't even need them to walk around. God doesn't need them to yell at the walls. And I just, I love to think about just how big God is. <laughs> oh, oh, you want the, okay, how do I get the walls to fall down without just knocking the whole city over, right? This is God. And by the way, that's not hard either. What, what does he want done? And, and by the way, they're about to experience this amazing victory. And it's in this amazing victory that there's going to be this incredible opportunity and potential for future defeat. And so this victory comes with a warning. No, 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 no. After we win a big game, we do nothing but celebrate, right? What could we ever... Like, like what, what bad comes from victory? I'll tell you this. What bad comes from victory? Somehow believing that you can still do what you want. One of the worst things that can happen is you fail to recognize that the one who gives you breath and health is the creator of the universe. You take it for granted. That you believe that your ability um, to create wealth is actually you. And you think you're in charge of this. They're my kids. I'm going to do with them what I want. This is my family. I'm going to do what I want. This is my company. I'm going to do what I want. This is my marriage. I'm going to do what I want. And so Joshua is actually speaking to a whole nation here. And he's saying, listen, we're about to walk in and we're about to experience victory. And with that comes this amazing temptation. And God's got some instructions. And we need to remember, we need to follow Joshua chapter 6, I want to look at verses 16 through 19, which is where he, they get a warning. And the reason why you give warnings in the Bible is because danger is right there. And in Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Joshua says to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. They're about to experience victory. And the city and all that is within it is devoted to the Lord for destruction. See, they're not getting this land because God is generically loving them and just doesn't like the people who are there. No, if you read the story, the reason why the walls are coming down and the reason why this, the nation or the, the, the land, the holy land is going to be taken over and given to Abraham's descendants is because of the evil and the wickedness and the sin that is taking place in the land. Judgment is coming and Joshua and the Israelites are those that are bringing God's judgment. You, you got to realize that's, that's part of the equation. Therefore, Jericho is being judged. 
He says, only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. That's kind of going back to a previous story in the book of Joshua. And then the warning, verse 18. But you, keep yourselves from the things that are devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel. Notice how it's not just you It's not just what you're doing, but when you are acting on behalf of all of us, there is this this intimate connection between you and us. And and we don't think like that, not in America. No, what I do with, with my body, what I do in the privacy of my own, what I do, that's nobody's business but mine. I, I know that's an American way of thinking. It's just not a biblical way of thinking. That actually is not true. The Bible nowhere says it's your body. You can do what you want. The Bible nowhere says you have these rights and you have these, the Bible doesn't talk like that. Actually, the Bible uses phrases like, no, your body was bought with a price and we are now slaves of Christ. The Bible describes us in those terms. And here you have Joshua reminding the people, listen, we are about to go in and how we react is going to affect us. How you react is going to affect us. So don't take these things that have been devoted to destruction because you will make the camp of Israel a thing devoted to destruction and you will bring trouble upon it, meaning the nation of Israel. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Hey, heads up, as we go in, there'll be other times in which we will be able to take the plunder. This is not one of those. This first one is God's, kind of a biblical principle. The first one is his. And when you see things that are God's and you take them, you not only bring destruction upon you, but upon those around you. Man, that just sounds so, almost almost communist, doesn't it? Like there's something wrong with that, isn't there? Like, like don't, doesn't God know that I really can do what I want and that in the end it doesn't affect anybody else? Raise your hand if you have actually been hurt by somebody else's sin. Anybody? Yeah. Not all of us. Most of us have not been, but a lot of us have. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So we actually, we know down deep that somehow we're more connected than we realize. So I find the warning goes out, and they have victory, by the way. God gives them victory. God tells them what to do. God knows what they're capable and incapable of. He says, I will provide my presence, and we will have victory. Be careful. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7 as it continues on. And I find this very interesting. To kind of sneak a little bit ahead, what this verse is going to tell us is that there is one person and they'll give his name, and they'll give like where he's from. There is one person who's not going to listen. One person who's not going to listen. But look how it's described in Joshua 7 verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith. No, 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 no. It wasn't all of them. It was just Achan. Don't drag us into this. Most of us got this right. But the people of Israel broke faith. In regard to the devoted things, for Achan. See, it does get to it. 
For Achan, I love how it describes who he is, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against Achan, and Achan only, for only he was response. No. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And then you might go, well, hey, that's not fair. That is so un-American. Well, let me tell you something. God's bigger than that. He's not out to try to impress you. I would argue that God sees something that you and I need to see is that there is a connection between you and I. There is some kind of a way that societally that we even live with one another that we need to be aware of and to just recognize that I don't have that kind of freedom because that kind of freedom, that kind of liberty just doesn't exist in the world. But how I act and react and how I live bears tremendous consequences and significance on those around me. And that's just a biblical principle. So Joshua decides, okay, he has no idea what's happened. He has no idea that the Lord is now angry at Israel. And so as they move on to this next city, it's no longer like Jericho with these great walls. It's a tiny town. It's a small place called AI. I had a professor when I was in college who actually found it. He actually, they couldn't find it forever. And he decided, well, I'm just gonna read the Bible. And he's reading the Bible and he kind of goes over to Israel and he starts digging and he found it. He was kind of, a, kind of an eccentric old bird. He was the kind of guy that, that literally, when he would get excited, he would find pitches that, um, of like excitement that just were eerie. It was no problem for Brother Fields to just in the middle, I found the city of AI. It's like, dude, chill. What is the, oh, I found AI. It was wonderful. He would get so excited. And I guess if I found AI, maybe I would find a pitch to use that would scare children. But he went over and he found this small city. And the small city has great significance because after God, by his presence and by his power and for his purposes, showed Israel what they could do with him, let them experience what they could not do without him. And this is a small town. We don't even need to take up all of our forces. Let's just go. They don't act presumptuously. They didn't even know that the Lord's presence had been removed, which is a scary thought in and of itself. And they go up and they are routed. And young men lose their lives. They die because God leaves them to themselves. And Joshua is now distraught. Joshua is now upset. And here's what he says. Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 through 12. After they take over Jericho and that shouldn't happen. And then we think we got eye eye and we don't get it. And people are dying. Joshua says, or the Lord, Joshua's like, he cries out to God in the early part there. God, why have you done this? And why are you abandoning us? And where are you? And, And by the way, just so you know, it's okay for you to complain to the Lord. But don't be surprised if the Lord speaks back honestly to you. Truly, God is incredibly gracious. And I know there can be those moments where we speak to him, but just don't be surprised if he speaks rather sternly to you. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? 
Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my, not Achan, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They will turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. That's what this whole thing is about. When we take those things that God has devoted for destruction, we bring that destruction upon us. When we decide to embrace a way of living, a way of acting, a way of worshiping that stands outside of God's blessings, don't expect God to just go along with it because you have the best of intentions or because everybody else is doing it. No, it's devoted for destruction. Therefore, you are devoted for destruction. He says, I will, be you, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And they take lots and they basically, their way of, of and I believe under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but they figure out which of the 12 tribes is it. And you'll never guess, they get it right. And of these tribes, which clan? And they get it right. And of this clan, which family? And they get it right. And of this family, which individual? And they get it right. And every time, I'm sure Achan and his family are going, oh, please, 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 please. Pick Issachar. Pick Issachar. <laughs> Judah? Ugh, right? All the way down, and it's you. And then the nation of Israel. This is hard to stomach in our culture because we, we would rather side with people in sin than God. Let's just be honest. We are more comfortable on the sides of sin and of, of people than we are God. That's why we have a hard time with these texts. And they take Achan and his family and his, the stuff he stole and his tent and they put it and they stone them all to death and then they burn them with fire. And I know you're going, that is so rude. They are just mean. Or sin is that bad. Like, do you realize what's wrong? Like, we, we just have more in common and more empathy for those who would rebel against God, those who would have no regard for who he is, no regard for his name, no regard for his word. Have you noticed we just have a different attitude towards sin than God does? After all, he's my brother, and I got to support him no matter what he does. We're family. Most likely, that's what Achan's family did, and one of the reasons why they died. He's our dad. I got to go along with it. Then you shall go along with it. Like, you do realize, like, God doesn't have that perspective. Like, God actually rewards those people who love him. This is a biblical idea, by the way. Who love him, who are devoted to him, who care more about him and who he is and what he's about than family. You do realize that the, the answer to the question, what could be more important than family, is in fact God. And Jesus says, and anyone who loves father or mother, or, and he kind of gives us, anyone who loves these more than me is not worthy of me. Why? Because then you and I will turn our back on sin. Meaning, we'll, like, by, by turn our back, meaning we'll just go along with it. We'll excuse it. We'll laugh at it. Have you ever just laughed like you're watching SNL or you're watching a show and it's just funny? Now, Jesus died for it, but it's just funny. I have. 
I do. And something is broken in that. And I see people all around me. And I just, my heart goes out to them and I just, I, they just need my support and encouragement. Yeah, but what they're doing is wrong and it's destructive and people are getting hurt. Yeah, but they're my friend. Like that's, this is not the biblical response. And God does not go along with this. He removes himself. He removes himself. Like you do, you do know what God does with sin, right? He punishes it. Acts chapter five, I'm not gonna read it to you, but it's kind of an interesting story where there are those within the church who decide what we are going to do is we are going to lie about the offerings that we give and who's gonna get hurt? Nobody. So they sell this land, a couple who are now famous, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this land and they go to the church and they want everybody to think they're awesome givers when in fact they're not as awesome as they wanna let. They're kind of using church for their name. Using God for their benefit. And they come up and Peter says, hey, listen, did you sell the land for such and such? Yes. By the time the whole encounter is done, two people are dead because they decided to take sin like it wasn't that big of a deal. And at the very end of Acts 5, and everyone held the name of the Lord in fear. Like God is not someone to be just treated like sin is no big deal. You want to know how big of a deal sin is? You want to know how big of a deal the presence of God is? It is such a big deal that the consequences of your sin and my sin, I, I know we talk about this, that they're forgiven and there is no penalty that you and I have to pay. Oh, you're right, because it's already paid. It's not God going, it's no big deal. It's God saying, listen, I took my son who did not know sin, and I had him become sin, the consequences of the things that you and I laugh at and that you and I embrace, and even that you and I might celebrate, those things that are active rebellion against God, God takes those things and puts him on his son, and he pays that penalty for us. <laughs> it's not funny, is it? And I want to be really clear about this. I am not trying to garner sympathy for Jesus who died for you. Nowhere in the Bible is it described that the best thing that we should be is sympathetic for Jesus, feel sorry for Jesus. No, the Bible describes us to be in awe of what Jesus Christ has done for us, to be amazed at the depths to which God would go for, that he would actually desire us so much and desire his name to be made great that we would celebrate the depths to which he would go so that sin could be dealt with. That is crazy. But it's true. I swear to you, I learned years ago that I didn't want to be the guy going, Jesus died for you. I hope you're happy. I hope you're happy. Look at what he did. That's never the point. It's look at what he did. Should we not be in awe of the God that would do that for us? Is he not loving? Is he not gracious? Is he not holy? What should guide my life is not what's funny or what's popular, or what's accepted. But what God has demonstrated and what God has done. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, that's Adam's. So also one righteous act resulted in justification for all people. That's Jesus. 
For just as though the disobedience of one man, and that's not Achan, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us, so that through the obedience of one man, that's Jesus, the many, that's us, will be made righteous. Is that not amazing? This is how great God is. And we no longer are under the weight and the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ has taken that for us. And we no longer have to be stuck in celebrating and neglecting and going along with sin because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, his presence, like in the nation of Israel, his presence is now in us. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, and I pray that he is, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we don't embrace sin. We don't go along with sin. We celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. We repent. We stand in awe. We are absolutely amazed that you and I who do not deserve this are given this because God knows. Listen, God doesn't just know people. He knows us. Like, and he knows what you and I are capable of. Did you know that? Like God knows that you're like smart and cute and intelligent. He really does. But God not only knows what you're capable of and really he knows exactly what you and I are capable of, but God also knows what you're incapable of. In the same way that God did not expect Abraham to produce a great nation or Noah to produce rain or Moses to produce victory, God knows that you and I cannot make peace with him without him. God knows we're absolutely incapable of pleasing him. And he didn't just sit back and say, good luck with this. He took care of it. And that's what you and I get to celebrate right now. This amazing fact that God has taken care of this. This is the gospel. This is the hope that you and I have. It is in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so this morning as we end, how we are going to end is literally remembering that Jesus Christ through his, what we might want to call defeat, brings us victory. Because it wasn't defeat, it was death. But it wasn't defeat, it was victory over sin. And I want to make this clear. I am not, when I paint the story of Jesus Christ dying for your sin, I am not trying to pull on your heartstrings so that you will be overwhelmed with guilt. That leads nowhere, Paul says. But to be overwhelmed with God's amazing grace. The band is going to play and, and not, not sing over us for five songs. No. Nope. Here's how we're going to end. I don't know, if, as far as I know, I don't know if we've ever done this before. But what I want, well, except for first service, we did this. I just, I want you to think about what Jesus Christ has done for you. I want you to think about your attitude towards sin. And, and you're probably messed up like me in some regard. And I want you to realize that, not that it's okay, but that God has taken care of that in Jesus. And they'll play as long as we need. You have a few moments. There's tables at the back and then all up front. 
This isn't like one of those fifth service Sundays where the band's gonna play kind of some exciting music. No. This is one of those sobering moments. Not sad, not sad, but sobering and reflective moment. When you and I have an opportunity to come around this table and just say thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us because sin is a really big deal. But God's a bigger deal. And Jesus is the way. And for that, you and I say, thank you, thank you, thank you. God, we thank you for this time that we can come and eat and drink. And Father, there are many different ways that we should approach the table. And today, we do so um, with a profound sense of humility. That Father, I would be Achan and I would be Adam apart from you. And I'm just so grateful that I don't have to bear the consequence of my own sin. But you have done that for me. Only in Jesus do we find life and hope. Thank you for bread and wine. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, eat well. Afterwards, you're dismissed. We love you guys.